entering the Freedom Hut. We're just hours away from the uh, second Democrat debate. We're going to talk about expectations from the left and the socialists and all the rest of it. We'll also talk about Trump doubling down on his feud with Representative Cummings over Baltimore. That and much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. We got a great extravaganza of politics current events philosophy musings all the stuff we usually do here in the hunt so thank you so much for joining i've got a few a few more weeks of swamp show and then we're heading up to the big apple nyc time i'm looking forward to it you know i'm just even if i even if i end up in a seventh floor walk up in a studio so small that i can cook my meals while showering and sitting on my bed, which don't think that that doesn't exist in New York. Uh, I'm, I'm just a New York guy, so it'll be good to be back home. But I've got some swamp time left in me and a lot to do while I'm here. So let's get to it, shall we? Uh, the Democrat debate in Detroit. Night one. It is, uh, it is coming up. Of course, it's a two-night extravaganza because there's a lot of Democrats who are out there running. And I would just note that Biden going into this thing is as as much. And I have been I know I've been very uh, effusive in my Biden criticism and my sense that there's just no chance in my mind that he is going to be the Democrats nominee. But if if we're going to really look into the data, turns out that Biden has. Quite a solid, uh, quite a solid lead going. It is thirty-three percent of likely Democratic voters. He's thirteen points ahead of Bernie Sanders, who's in second place with twenty percent. Warren is in third place at fourteen percent, and uh, uh, there, you know, that's. And then you got Harris, and then Buttigieg, and you know, then then it goes down. I'm pretty sure that Beto O'Rourke is going to pull a John Cusack from. Uh, say anything where he's just going to stand up on stage with uh, Peter Gabriel in your eyes playing on a boombox while wearing a trench coat, just looking at the Democrat primary voters of America and say, I'm here for you. And I just like really think that if you gave Beto a shot, I could totally be the next president of the United States and unite all of our spirits in a harmony that would be unbreakable. Uh, I could see Beto making a making a play for it. I really could. I think there is a chance there is a a possibility that uh, he's I mean, not that he's going to win or anything. I mean, he's going to do something kind of crazy tonight. The expectation, and it's because I believe he has uh, said it recently, is that he is that that Biden rather is going to be the the big show tonight. And he's not going to be so nice this time. He's not going to be so nice. I'm going to get it into an in-depth conversation with you because I've done a lot of reading some deep diving on busing. And it's one of these policies that stretches back for a long time. There's a lot of sensitivities around it, a lot of what, you know, telling people what they can and can't say about it. 
I read into it, looked at look at the data, looked at the stories, looked at the reality, and uh, that whole exchange between Biden and Kamala was very interesting because it was the emotionally woke side of the Democratic Party going after with Kamala Harris, going after the more in touch with the political realities and the difficulties of policy with Joe Biden. That's just consider that a little preview of where we're going to be going with this in in just a few minutes, because I really uh, the busing. uh, Here's what I can tell you. For most of you, what, what I'll be able to illuminate around the busing issue, you probably haven't heard elsewhere. Um, you probably because people get very tense about discussing it and oh no, yeah, busing is great. You know everything's great. It's like you know affirmative action. Oh, it's great. I don't want to criticize that. It's all that's that has started to change recently. But the the expectation is that there's going to be a very big Biden moment or that he's trying to get a big Biden moment. And, and here's where I, I think he'll fall flat. I really do. I I do not believe that Joe Biden has it in him. Uh, there have been. Some big establishment media organizations that have already laid a bit of the groundwork for Biden's replacement of of sorts uh, to come forward. The the leading person in this uh, in this particular presidential contest. Trump disagrees with me on this. I will note and I, I he has a an ability, an intuitive political sense that is. It, it feels like it's, you know, he's the X-Men and this is his superpower or something. I mean, he, he he says things that people say you can never say. And not only does he say it and get away with it, but then people start to realize, wow, maybe he was right. Maybe he's just speaking truth about something that we're not allowed to talk about. And Trump believes that Biden is going to limp to the nomination, I think was the uh, Sleepy Joe will limp to the nomination, I think was the quote from earlier today. So I, I don't believe that's going to happen. I, I just don't see it. I think it's going to if you ask me to put money on who would be the Democrats nominee right now. I think it's Kamala Harris. Jeff Zucker probably thinks it's Kamala Harris over at at uh, CNN. I love when they show a Zucker photo. You'll see some of these where it looks like he's maybe gone three buttons down on the button down shirt. You know, he really likes to show off the the Zucker chest hair. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's. I'm just telling you, look at the photos. You'll see what I mean. It really likes to give us a lot of a lot of uh, Zucker man cleavage in a lot of the photos. But he uh, here, here. Here's a story. This has been on the top of Drudge, uh, the top of Drudge for the last 24 hours. CNN's Jeff Zucker once fetid Kamala Harris. Will that help or hurt in 2020? Uh, so, you know, when he ran to become the first. Uh, when, I'm sorry, when she ran, when Kamala Harris ran to become the first woman of, of color, according to McClatchy here, to be the California attorney general a decade ago, Jeff Zucker uh, told guests at a, a NBC Rockefeller Plaza office gathering in August 2009 that, quote, Kamala is not just important for the city of San Francisco, the state of California, but the entire country. And he, you know, he, so he was a huge backer of of hers. Uh, look, my friends, I, I like that people know more of this now. I, I like that this information comes to light. It makes it harder for us all to be told to choke down the lie that these news organizations aren't picking winners and losers in this process or trying to pick winners and losers. There are absolutely, absolutely 
um, journalists who are doing what they can to shape the narrative so that their preferred candidate is going to come out on top of this whole thing. What do I think will be interesting tonight? Here's the question that I would want asked. Of course, it's CNN, so they won't ask this question. Ask the Democrats, what do you love the most about this country? I think that would be really interesting. What is your favorite? Not, and I, that, that, it has to be the thing you love the most about America. Because it, it, that otherwise will turn into... Well, like, you know, Beto would stand up, you know, what I love is that, like, we're all so full of love. And, like, while we're imperfect, but we have this, like, amazing, like, ability to love each other. And yet we don't do it enough. And no, no, no. A thing. What, what, what is it about this country that separates? Or rather, make your different variations of the question would work for me. Ask all the Democrats on stage, why is America better than other countries? How about that? Why are we better than other countries? They would say, oh, but it depends on the country and everything. No, no, no. If you're going to run for president of the United States, you've got to think America's number one. So that means that you've got to think we're better than every other country, which I believe, you believe. A lot of Democrats don't believe it, folks. This is why it would be such a great question. And it gives them so little room for, you know, I mean, I would love it if they would answer it in a kind of Barack Obama. Remember, this was a moment where Barack Obama was a little vulnerable, you know, that, that he... He believes that the Americans believe in American exceptionalism the way that Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, every country is basically just as great as another country. Make me president of America, though. I mean, that was the pitch. People are like, what? Those questions would be really fun. Instead, you're going to get the, you know, uh, Medicare for all. What would you do about the border? And Democrats are going to just play to the left wing base. They're just going to play to the left wing base. That's what this and hope that they can move back to the center later on, which this always occurs in every presidential cycle. But some of the positions they're taking are just bonkers. I mean, health care for illegal aliens paid for by the taxpayer when you don't want to stop illegal aliens from flooding into the country is crazy. Normal voters, sane people will not go for that. And they've all raised their hand, at least in that second debate, I think it was in favor of that. So what will we learn tonight? I mean, here, here's a prediction that I'll only remind you of if I'm right tomorrow. Biden's going to have a not strong, a strong, but not strong enough performance. That'll be the consensus. Beto will be done. Kamala will rise. And the real fight is going to be Warren versus Bernie. That's going to be the most interesting component of tonight's debate. We shall see. Is Kamala in tonight's debate? I don't even know. I might have gotten that one wrong. But the other ones are all true, I think. We'll be right back. One man stands ready to deliver change we desperately need. A man I'm proud to call my friend. A man who will be the next president of the United States, Barack America. Hillary Clinton is as qualified or more qualified than I am to be vice president of the United States of America. Quite frankly, it might have been a better pick than me. Look, John's last minute economic plan does nothing to tackle the number one job facing the middle class. And it happens to be, as Barack says, a three letter word. Jobs. J-O-B-S. Jobs. If we do everything right, we do it with absolute certainty. We stand up there and we make really tough decisions. There's still a 30% chance we're going to get it wrong. His mom uh, lived in uh, in Long Island for 10 years or so. Uh, God rest her soul. And uh, um, although she's... Wait, your mom's still... Your mom's still alive as your dad passed. 
God bless her soul. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama. Now is the time to heed the timeless advice from Teddy Roosevelt. Speak softly and carry a big stick. I promise you, the president has a big stick. I promise you. My favorite is a three-letter word, J-O-B-S, jobs. And he doesn't correct himself. (laughs) Joe, Joe... Biden, man, he is so lucky that the uh, media libs have concocted this whole narrative of how Joe Biden is just, you know, the the cute grandpa that makes the funny jokes and everything. You know, meanwhile, if Bush made any mistake when he was president, they just all called him a moron. Oh, he's terrible. He's you know, Biden can say the dumbest stuff you can imagine. And they go, oh, it's just Joe being Joe. Biden's never never struck me as all that bright. I think that Reagan's very short description of him uh, from back in the 80s was very apt, which is that he is a a perfect demagogue. Um, that's that's exactly what he what he is, and really a shameless demagogue. Uh, I don't think he's a bad guy. I just think he's a very mediocre guy who's gotten politically lucky a couple of times. And is a classic politician. He'll say whatever he has to say whenever he has to say it. Uh, who worries me more are the the far left types. I mean, the the Sandernista uh, folks out there, you know, the the ones who are going to be fighting it out. The clash of liberals, as I saw today on the, the Drudge Report, Warren and Sanders here, uh, because there can really only be one far left candidate that can get enough, I, I think, I mean, who knows how this is all going to play out, but that can get enough of a of, of a left-wing base behind him or her that they'll be in this thing for a long time. Uh, it's just, it becomes a crowded lane, and eventually people are just going to want the one person who's in the best position to win. Uh, they're going to want the one person who seems like they can really get it done. And I don't know who it's going to be, but I do think that Bernie's. I, I think that there. I think it's going to be Warren, folks. I don't. I don't see Bernie. You know, I'm. I'm getting pretty, pretty iffy on the Burns' chances of being the crazy commie who makes it all the way through the Democrat primary. That's for sure. I mean, he says stuff that it's going to be very difficult for him to walk away from. Play clip six. You've been very critical of Bibi Netanyahu and the Israeli government. We spent a few billion dollars on aid to Israel. Um, would you ever consider using that aid as leverage the Israeli government to act differently? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we are giving large sums of money. Look, let me, let me back it up. I lived in Israel. Yeah. Actually, I worked in a kibbutz for a number of months. I have family in Israel. I am Jewish. I am not anti-Israel. Okay. I believe that the people of Israel have absolutely the right to live in peace independence and security end of discussion that is what i fervently believe but i think what has happened is in recent years under netanyahu you have an extreme right-wing government with many racist tendencies a right-wing government with racist tendencies so uh he would consider cutting aid to israel bernie sanders folks man this guy's 
you know, whether you agree with our, our financial uh, support of Israel or not, you know, this is going to be something that, that the burn is going to have to answer for down the line here. You know, this is not something that he can easily spin. Uh, so I, I don't see Bernie Sanders being able to to take this thing all the way. But one thing I, I will say I, I do like is Democrats, uh, the craziness of the Democratic Party is currently the biggest hurdle they have. And the platform is is now far left. Whether all the candidates are far left, we'll have to see. Um, but I think it's hard to argue that if they're all supporting a far left platform, they aren't themselves accurately described as in some way far left. And that's why there's a, this new Trump campaign ad that came out that uh, hits pretty close to home. Play 12. Raise your hand if your government plan would provide coverage for undocumented immigrants. They're all the same. These Democrats support giving illegal immigrants free health care at our expense, spending taxpayer dollars covering illegal immigrants, calling for socialized medicine, destroying health care as we know it, and putting illegal immigrants before hardworking Americans. The Democrats, radical, reckless, socialist. They're all the same. Radical reckless socialist i like it it's got kind of a ring to it doesn't it and i don't think it's really accurate to say they're all the same but they all want well maybe this is what they're going for they all want the same things more or less there are slight variations on a theme but i i don't think it's out of line to refer to them as socialists i think that they are increasingly very obviously uh socialists they don't like the term because the term for a lot of americans comes with uh, baggage and there's a recognition that socialism is a failure historically and always fails wherever it is tried and yet democrats are now trying to dust it off and say oh no we figured out how to do it the right way this time i think that's very very unlikely my friends in fact i know it's not the case but they're still trying to make a go of it somehow so we shall see tonight i'll be uh, i'll be live tweeting the debate so if you aren't on twitter Now's a great time to start. If you are on Twitter, please retweet my stuff because it'll trigger libs all over the place. And uh, oh, by the way, I think I said this to you, but tomorrow I'm in Baltimore and then Thursday I'm in Los Angeles and then Friday I'm doing the Bill Maher show. So it's a busy week in the Freedom Hut, my friends. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. That was the single most talked about and and politically the most important exchange from the last Democratic presidential debate in Miami back on June 28th of this summer. That whole exchange on that. That was when it, it all of a sudden. One of the the new guard of Democrat aspirants to the uh, presidential nomination all of a sudden seemed like she could take Biden down a peg or two. All of a sudden, he wasn't the unstoppable poll, uh, unstoppable political force that the polls showed him to be. Now, I I wanted to weigh in on this issue at the time, but I, I first wanted to take the time to read quite a bit about. Busing, which I've done, 
and a, a very quick review of a very complicated and decades long program is that after the passage of the Civil Rights, uh, Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act in, in the 60s, there was an effort to integrate the schools. The federal government says, OK, well, now we're going to integrate schools and judges, federal judges often mandated it in different parts of the country. And this was very contentious for a whole lot of reasons. The Democrat narrative of events here is that this was necessary, a good idea, and that it worked well. The reality is that this was a flawed idea, poorly implemented, that sometimes worked for some people, but a lot of the time it didn't work for people at all, for the children, for the students involved in this. And instead of addressing the, the problems or, or looking at the program for what it really was, what do you think the Democrats go to explanation of everything was? If you oppose busing, you're a racist. Doesn't stand up to scrutiny at all, though. Doesn't stand up to the facts. It was, I will tell you, a low blow. It was a cheap shot that Kamala Harris threw at Biden in that debate. Wasn't wasn't fair. Wasn't fair. Um, and, and she must have known that because here's the truth about the uh, busing system in this country. Uh, a, a lot of a, a lot of what went wrong with it was entirely predictable because it was a failure of central planning. This was a top down solution for a problem that did not take into account Local realities did not take into account localized improvisation. All of the predictable failures of central planning were evident in busing. It was a blunt instrument for what should have been a very precise and case by case uh, uh, approach. For one thing, people should have been able to choose. See, the way that busing worked was you would, if you were a student, your, your parents would be told, hey, uh, you can't go to your local high school anymore. You're now going to get on a bus. That's why they called it busing for 45 minutes, an hour, maybe an hour and a half each way to go to some other school because we say so. Hmm. Well, some of the students and this was all about racial integration, right? There were there were schools that were almost entirely white or entirely white schools that were almost entirely black. And so what the. Czars of the government and the Department of Education decided to do is, well, let's just tell people top down that, uh, OK, we're going to just make a determination that, you know, certain students are going to go to this school and other students are going to go to that school. And no one, none of the students opinions matter at all. None of the family's opinions matter at all. This is the way it's going to be. You say, why is that? Why is that necessary? Why is that? And any criticism of this is shouted down as racism right away. Criticism of it is must be indicative of racism. And there were some areas of the country, notably in uh, Boston, in what I believe is considered Southie in Boston. Uh, there were some ugly racial incidents when busing was instituted where people didn't, you know, they didn't want. And it seemed to be really racial animus. But you know, what? in, in all the studies they've done, the number one reason people didn't like busing was they didn't like getting on a bus for a long time to go to a school that was far away. What a shock. White students didn't like it in many, many, many cases. Black students didn't like it in many, many, many cases. 
The program was an abject failure in many places. The program had all kinds of unintended consequences. One of them was, okay, so you're going to take a predominantly white school district in, let's say, Detroit, and you're going to say, guess what? Now we're going to make it, you know, 60-40 white and African-American. A lot of people in that neighborhood might say, you know what? Um, I am going to, and this is what happened. They moved. They moved because they moved to that neighborhood in the first place for the school. Now they can't go to that school. So guess what? They moved somewhere else. And they go somewhere where they can live near the school. For a lot of students, I was reading all of these uh, you know, individual mini memoirs and anecdotes from people. Because this, this got a lot of attention the last month. So there's plenty of stuff to read all over the Internet about it. And they were all saying that you know, they, they picked their school based on where or, or rather they pick where they live based on what the school was then this was a big draw for people oh we're going to go to this school and then you say okay buck but why did they why were they so worried that busing would make the school worse okay this isn't really that hard folks if you take a school that is predominantly minority and has students that are performing several grades below their level their their age level and you put them in the same classroom with students who are performing at grade level then you have a problem of instruction. What do you do? And th- this this played out in many different schools and school districts across the country over, over many decades. What, what do you do? Now you got to create separate classes. And so, okay, but now you're in separate classes, but you're in the same building. There, there's no magic. This is one of the lies about the Department of Education is, you know, oh, if only we had a, a shinier, newer school, everybody would do their homework and everything would be great. This is not true. Schools are part of communities. Schools are places where people from an area come together in a worthwhile pursuit, learning, but they're an integral part of the day-to-day lives of, of countless communities across the, across the country. Do you know when all of a sudden busing stopped being something that you had to just bend the knee and say, this is a great idea, there's no problems with this at all? By the way, there are a lot of ways to integrate schools that don't involve busing. They could have had incentive programs, charter schools, vouchers. I, I'm, I'm not in any way saying that the goal of creating a classroom that is not a, a, an ethnic uh, monoculture, right, where there's not just one group of any, whether, of any race, right, where there's different ethnicities represented, different. That, that's a good idea. That makes sense. That's, people should have uh, exposure to individuals from different backgrounds. But it's the mechanism of how they tried to do this that was just inherently flawed. Telling a bunch of kids, guess what? You're in the fifth grade. You love your local school. Now you got to go to the other side of town. It's a 40-minute drive each way. Now you don't get to see any of your friends anymore. And, oh, what a surprise. Do your parents come to the PTA meetings? Do they come to the basketball or, or baseball games? Not if it's 40 minutes away. They've got jobs and lives, right? It's not part of their community anymore. There were just countless countless problems with this program but it didn't really start to become something that you could talk about something that you could uh you could criticize until they did studies where guess what there were black students in many parts of the country i mean i know we're going to speak with this at a national level over many decades so we've got to keep this the discussions inherently going to be somewhat broad but there are black students in many parts of the country in different school districts who were told well you have to be bused to a a, a a whiter school district or a whiter school rather. And they were like, I don't, but what if I like my school? I don't want, I don't want to do that. I like the school I'm going to now. I live in this neighborhood. I like this school. I want to be around my friends. And 
you know the the to the to the point about the failures of central planning one of them is that individual choice doesn't matter the decisions are being made for you busing did this on a massive scale you weren't asked if you wanted to go to the other school you were told this is where this is now your assigned school you weren't asked if you want to get white or black didn't matter you weren't asked you were told well, what if you don't want to do that? And then, then you get into all the different studies as well about who's to say that a school inherently now there's the experience of having exposure to people of different races in school, which, again, I think that that's that that's a that's a commendable goal. How do you get there? OK, but then there's also does that does that necessarily if you approach that goal, even if you're very aggressive about it and you do get the preferred representation levels which i think if it's considered if it's less than 20 to 40 percent minority i think they consider it to be not an integrated school i forget what the department of education guidelines were uh it probably is a formula that varies from different parts of the country but even if you get to that level doesn't mean it's a great school sometimes people this is really uh you know this is is really where you see how this stuff fails Black students who were in a school that they liked, where they were doing well academically, would be bused to a new school that they didn't like, and they stopped doing well academically. And, you know, they were just casualties of the system. Things were great. They were doing well. They were told, nope, sorry, now you got to hop on a bus, go 45 minutes, other side of town or, you know, nearest town, whatever it was. Their whole educational outlook changed. It was perhaps ruined. Now, Now, you can read stories of people who, Let's say that this changed their life and it made everything better. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have. I'm saying that that should have been a choice. That was open. They should have been able to have exactly the experience that they had, but it should have been a choice that they made with their families. Right. It should be, you know, you, you have the option to go to this school. Do you want to go to this school? It should never have been. And Biden, to his credit, was at least saying in this debate that he was never a, a, a proponent of forced busing, that it should have been an option to people. So He's right. Forced busing is not a good idea. Busing by choice, that can work. But it also doesn't deal with the failing schools and the, you know, just busing doesn't fix the problems of the schools, doesn't fix the problems of the society. I mean, it's a it's a very uh, you know, blunt instrument for a very precise and precision needed problem. So that's the truth. So I just think it's so interesting that everyone, oh Biden and she really, you know, she really showed him and you go back and you learn about this and you find out that uh, busing was not this cure-all. It was not this education integration panacea that many on the left pretend it is. And it's just so, so typical that what they did in order to shut down criticism, in order to tell people, oh, you can't. They did what they always, oh, you're racist. If you have any, if you criticize busing at all, it must be racist. Okay, well, what about criticizing busing on behalf of the you know young black students and, and black families who didn't want to be bused anywhere and it didn't work out for them? Are we, are we allowed to talk about their views on this or not? I just shut it down because it's you know shut down the conversation because it's racist. And really, the amount of damage that Democrats and the left have done to discourse on important issues by just being a bunch of uh, race baiting race hucksters is. It's incalculable. You know, there was the story in the New York Times. So welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We're talking about busing. There was a story in the Times a couple of weeks ago about uh, Louisville, Kentucky, talking about how, oh, it's such a big success story uh, for, for integration of schools via busing. 
And now you have uh, some areas of the city that are predominantly African-American where they want to be able to stay at schools closer to home. They want to stay at their neighborhood schools. They don't want to be bused. And you have all these liberals, predominantly white liberals making these decisions, by the way, who are saying, oh, what do you, what do you mean you don't want to be bused to the, the school on the other side of the town that has a higher white, uh, white population? This is necessary for diversity. And black students, in, this is going on right now. This is a conversation is happening in Louisville, Kentucky. Black students are like, look, not all of them, but some of them are saying, I like the school in my neighborhood. Can I can I please just go to the school in my neighborhood? That's this is my community. You know, but you know, liberals top down centralized planning. That's how they do things. Here's a here's a, a a few letters, by the way. I mentioned this to you that there's been all this stuff out there about busing. I think there's a fascinating subject. I hope we're going to move on to the fight over Baltimore and. And Elijah Cummings versus Trump and all that. That's coming up in just a minute. But I wanted to share with you a couple of these. These were published in the New York Times. These were letters to the editor in the aftermath of that first Democratic debate about the whole busing issue. And here's one from a guy named John in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Here's what he wrote. In 1973, I was one of the white students who was bused to one of the worst high schools in Prince George's County in Maryland. How would you have liked to have been forced to attend a high school known for violence, drug abuse, and poor academics? White families in Prince George's County who had children forcibly bused to poorly performing, unsafe high schools revolted en masse and moved out of the county. Forced busing resulted in a domino effect when these families moved. Home values fell and businesses closed. Crime and drug abuse rose countywide. Busing was stopped in Prince George's County some 25 years later. Millions of dollars had been wasted and it had widespread detrimental effects. The elitist scholars will never admit that forced busing was a colossal failure, nor would they ever send their own children to an unsafe, inferior school. John Meinhold, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is published in the New York Times, folks. I'm just telling you this. You ever hear that about busing? Oh, no, busing is, you know, libs. Totally rewrite the history of what what was really going on. Kevin, one more here. Regarding school integration by busing, Nicole Hannah-Jones states that white Americans' veneration of neighborhood schools has never outweighed their desire to maintain racially homogenous environments for their children. This is not true and doesn't reflect how how many people feel about having their children attend nearby schools. My children attend highly regarded neighborhood schools that my wife and I chose by selecting where we live. The schools are racially diverse and our children are of mixed race. I don't care at all about the racial makeup of the schools. I care about safety, academics and time. Having my children attend schools several miles away would be a complete non-starter and I would not consider living in an area where this is possible. Most of the country no longer has an environment where all things are about black and white. It's a broad mix, and people are more concerned with academic performance than skin color. What you claim may have been true 50 years ago in a binary racial environment, uh, but it really has no bearing in most of America today. Kevin in Englewood, Colorado. People that have some thoughts on this, folks. Some of them who dealt with this very personally. Anyone going to ask any, any questions to Kamala about this stuff? No! She got her shot in on Biden, and that's all that really mattered. All the journos were a flutter. Let me tell you, you know, I've thought about this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Biden is going to be the nominee, even though that means Trump's going to win. Now, Baltimore has been very badly mishandled for many years. As you know, Congressman Cummings has been there for a long time. He's had a very iron hand on it. It's a corrupt city. There's no question. 
question about it. All you have to do is look at the facts. Uh, the government has pumped in over the years billions and billions of dollars to no avail, to absolutely no avail. Uh, Baltimore is a uh, is an example of what corrupt government leads to. Billions of dollars have been given, and I feel so sorry for the people of Baltimore. And if they ask me, we will get involved. But we're already involved from the standpoint that over many years, billions and billions of dollars have been given to Baltimore. It's been misspent. It's been missing. It's been stolen with a lot of corrupt government. And as you know, uh, Cummings has been in charge. Now, I will say this. I think that Representative Cummings should take his oversight committee and start doing oversight on Baltimore. He'd find out some real things. On the President Trump doubling down on his view of uh, Baltimore as a place in desperate need of better leadership and, and his criticism of, of Elijah Cummings, longtime Democrat member of Congress representing Baltimore. And, and this, is, uh, one of, this is one of Trump's superpowers, folks. Oh, there's all this outrage. Oh, how could he? He's not allowed to say that. Yeah, well, he did. And now he's saying it again. And what he's saying about Baltimore is, by and large, true. They may not like exactly the words that he's using, but that he's saying things that need to be said and are true, that's more important to people, or at least to people that have an open mind and want to know what's going on. Uh, you know, Baltimore has a homicide rate that's approaching some of the Central American countries that people are fleeing from, claiming that they are uninhabitable because of the violence they face. There are parts of Baltimore that are right up there in, in terms of uh, homicides per 100,000 residents. Right up there with Central American uh, countries that are in desperate straits. So why should we obscure the truth about what's happening here? Why, why shouldn't we be able to have a conversation about this no one ever seems to have an answer oh because trump's racist that's what they say because trump is a bad man who is racist uh they know that this doesn't change any minds right they understand that this is just feeding uh, feeding more propaganda to the left-wing base that wants to hear, that has an emotional need to hear that donald trump is a racist because that then shuts down everything else all of his success all of trump's ability up to this point to govern effectively the economy, all these different things. None of that matters because he's a racist. This is a lazy attack by the media, but it's a, a favored attack by the media, too. It is on so many Republican politicians, so many Republicans. And, and if, if Trump were nearly as racist as they say he is, why is it that I know so many uh, Latino and African-American conservatives who are staunch are staunch Trump defenders? And think that he's better on a lot of these issues than even some of his Republican predecessors were. Why do I or, or, or Democrat predecessors in terms of the results? They just they just don't they just don't care that he's such a clear racist. This is this is what we get from the Democrats, though. It's demagoguery. It's demagoguery. And, and they're defending the indefensible with the situation in Baltimore. That's why we played some of that audio for you yesterday with residents of Baltimore who were saying, look, this place is really really in fact a mess and that democrats would go to sharpton still just shows you how delusional they really are about all of this i mean that democrats would go the al sharpton route here um 
and try to use him as the voice of real authority on racial issues. Wow. Now, Trump's not having any of that, of course. Play clip four. I am the least racist person there is anywhere in the world when con men, who I've known all, you know, almost all my business life, because I had to deal with him, unfortunately, in New York, but I got along with him, Al Sharpton. Uh, now, he's a racist. What I've done for African Americans in two and a half years, no president has been able to do anything like it. Unemployment at the lowest level in the history of our country for African Americans. Nobody can beat that. You look at poverty levels. They're doing better than they've ever done before. So many things. Opportunity zones. Criminal justice reform. President Obama couldn't get it done. Al Sharpton is someone who has incited uh, anti-Semitic bigotry in the past that led to fatality. Al Sharpton is somebody who has said horrific things about uh, Jewish Americans and has never repudiated, repudiated any of that. And if that's not enough, Al Sharpton also used to talk about how much he hated cops. And Bruiser Mike pulled this audio from 1992 where he's telling people to uh, off pigs, which I, my my uh, street lingo is not that strong, but I believe offing pigs means killing police officers. Here's Al Sharpton in 1992. You can hear it for yourself. Play one. I don't believe in marching. I believe in offing the pigs, he said at a rally in 1992. I believe in killing cops. That's, that's what that means. They, they can try to, oh, no, he didn't mean it. He meant something. He said it. Has he ever apologized for it? No, he's got Joe Scarborough running around like the, just the absolute turncoat ideological traitor that he is. Not a traitor to his country, a traitor to his party. Uh, and saying that you know Sharpton is a, is a change man and he forgives him because of of the bible or something. I mean just it's pathetic. I mean Sharpton is is a travesty of a human being and the fact that Democrats still go to him shows you a lot about who they are. Buck Sexton here. So I I met representative uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri. Do, if you're from do you say Missouri or is it Missouri? I, I always got to get the state names right cuz People say these things different ways. And never forget the Nevada-Nevada controversy of 2017 when I had to learn finally that it's not, in fact, Nevada. It is Nevada. But I think I can say Missouri, and that's all right. Anyway, Josh Hawley's a, a freshman member of Congress, and he's gotten a lot of attention for uh, his stance on, on social media and social media regulation. And he's one of these people who says, one of these members of Congress who's saying, look, you know, you can't have it both ways. Facebook, Google, and these other... These are the most powerful media companies in the world now. I mean, the other... The legacy media stuff, uh, places like CNN and ABC and all that, they're, they're on the way out. You know, they're, they're just little subsidiaries now of the mega conglomerates, the, the technology and infrastructure providers, places like uh, AT&T. I mean, that's where it's all heading. You're, you're not going to have the 
the same uh, sway. You know, I mean, you, you've seen, for example, how much the movie production studios, I mean, movie production uh, studios back in the 1990s were among the most powerful, iconic uh, cultural institutions in the whole country. Because Ameri- the American movie market is global, and, and if you could make a really big budget film, and you could pack theaters across the country, I mean, that, that was, the, the power they had was tremendous. Now, I mean, people don't even need them. What are the, why do the studios even really exist? They're, they're just trying to stay alive, trying to keep up with the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world who have these enormous budgets and can distribute their own content digitally, right? So the most powerful media companies in the world are digital media companies. That's already happened. That's, there's no question. That's, that's what's going on. Meanwhile, I mean, here I am speaking to you on radio, and there are all kinds of regulations about radio, you know, what I can say and where we can broadcast and broadcasting licenses and FM and AM and all this stuff. There's all kinds of regulations on traditional cable TV. And yet the Internet giants, these mega corporations, uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Twitter, they, they want to be completely left to their own devices. Oh, no, we'll, we'll self-police. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll be in charge of our own situation well holly and others have said no sorry not so fast Uh, i do think that they are i I think that google is a monopoly for example and that we we should be aware of that i think that google is a monopoly i think that these companies should be uh should be looked at and if uh if in fact it would be of benefit to not just the, the consumer's bottom line but also consumer freedom um then I think that you should break them up. Probably. I know right now a bunch of libertarians are slapping their foreheads. Oh, Buck, how could you? Oh, I'm sorry. This reminds me a bit of the tariff debate. Oh, tariffs are terrible. We can't have tariffs. Okay, but a lot of places have tariffs against us. So what do we do? Do we just sit around saying, well, we can't have tariffs. They're terrible. Because they do. China does. The EU does. Canada does. We just sit around and take it because tariffs are terrible. They never really had an answer for me on that one. The digital media is a province now of the left. I mean, they they dominate in these digital media companies. Should we just say, well, well, you know, there's a lot, you know, they, they the somehow here. Here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Somehow the FCC is able to block a merger between Tribune and Sinclair to create another conservative major channel but we can't have any regulations on facebook or twitter or anything else we can't have any expectation of neutrality as a platform instead of as a publisher with them right so someone explain that to me well why is the fcc approving mergers of companies because oh it'll give them too much reach in local markets and blah 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 that's exactly that's how they shut it down too much reach in local markets and digital media reaches everywhere all the time and it doesn't make any sense so we live, and this is part, you know, part of the problem is, you know, conservatives, uh, there's the, our intelligentsia tends to be very happy to just think that they're right and exist in this think tank culture where they just, they, they spew this stuff and there's some more elite conservative opinion journals that then repeat this stuff. And, you know, whatever somebody at, at Cato or whatever somebody at Heritage or wherever, you know, puts out as a research paper, that's that's treated by much of the conservative intelligentsia as gospel. Meanwhile, you just look around, and you say, well, hold on a second. You know, we're getting our teeth kicked in on this thing. Can we do something about that? 
Oh, no, no, no. Let the free market decide. I agree with you. The free market deciding would be great. The free market is not deciding right now. In all other aspects of communication and media, there's tons of regulation. All right. Well, let me get back to Josh Hawley. I, as you tell, I get a little fired up about this one. So Josh Hawley, seems like a very nice guy, by the way. He's got a big future ahead of him, I think, in politics. He uh, has introduced the Social Media Addiction Reduction Technology Act. And uh, it would make it illegal for social media platforms to hook users by offering them more content than they requested in order to get them to continue on their respective platforms here, according to The Hill. It would also require the companies to build user-friendly interfaces with features allowing users to limit the amount of time they spend on the platform and offering reminders about how much time they've already spent perusing the site. Quote, big tech has embraced a business model of addiction, Holly said in a statement. Too much of the innovation in this space is designed not to create better products, but to capture more attention by using psychological tricks that make it difficult to look away. Holly would empower the Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys to take action against companies that do not remove addictive features. I think Holly's just. Look, I think that he's just doing this as a, as a kind of a awareness raising. He has no, he's not seriously thinking that this bill is going to come into effect. I, mean, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I think he's just trying to make a point with this. Because uh, this bill is a bad idea. I'm going to say this bill is a bad idea. I mean, what, what, what constitutes being addictive? Some people watch TV eight hours a day. Some people don't have a TV. You know, I'm actually going to tell you this right now because I'm probably going to be doing a little virtue signaling here on on the radio show once it happens i don't think i'm gonna when i move to new york i don't think i'm gonna have cable i'm gonna be digital only now is that really virtue signaling no but you know it makes people like to be like oh, i don't even have cable i used to not have those of you listen to the show in the early days no i didn't have a tv for years and i read so many more books uh then i'm just gonna be honest it was you know my book reading has probably been it probably dropped in half because for me it's so easy to justify oh i'm gonna watch I'm going to watch TV because I have to for my job, right? I have cable news on. I've got to know what's going on. But you learn so much more from reading the news than you do from watching it. Don't let anyone know I told you that. But and one of the reasons why I love radio as a format is because I get to spend enough time with you where there's real substance to the conversation. It's not, you know, a, a five-minute radio show is worth nothing. A five-minute, uh, you know, TV segment is standard. So... Why do I think that this is a bad idea? Well, because how would you even enforce this? And what is it? But it does raise an interest. This is a more philosophical question. That there's, a, there's an experiment. There's a reality right now all around us of human beings are a new kind of lab rat. And social media is that little pedal that we're pushing to get the, the pellet that we eat. You know, social media is more influencing our day-to-day perceptions and lives than anybody has ever lived with in the history of humanity. And I, obviously, right, because the technology is new and now it's pervasive, it's everywhere. And I think about what this would, what this means, you know, the, the uh, commoditization, for example, of, of female attractiveness that is going on here. I mean, there are, there are women who are on Instagram and on these different things. They've got millions of followers who are generating very large incomes for themselves, which is great for them. But, you know, what, is it, what does it now mean in a society where this is now essentially being really, really attractive is, is a job in a way that you don't have to go to a modeling agency and all that. You just, you just start taking photos of yourself all the time. 
You know, we're, we're running a new kind of vanity experiment here. We're running a new experiment in, in how much we're supposed to be constantly engaging with each other. And, you know, you end up engaging on social media with a lot of people that you really wouldn't want to talk to in real life. You know, people tweet horrible things at me on a regular basis. I don't want to talk to those people. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to people that are interesting and want to learn and have good intentions and come at difficult, challenging questions with a good heart and a sound mind, not, you know, just running around flailing and screaming and, you know, ah, and all the stuff that libs do these days. I don't want that. I don't really need to deal with those people. I'd rather not. I mean, a crushing libs can be kind of a fun pastime, but no one really knows where all the social media stuff is going, folks. That's And, and it is addictive. It is addictive. And, you know, you need to force yourself. I, I will tell you just one little trick, one little thing to make sure that when you're not, when, when, when you have time that is, you know, with the wife, the husband, the kids, and you don't want to engage in social media, put your phone out out of your reach not just off out of your reach off your person it makes a difference i'm telling you you may even feel a little a little twinge of anxiety because i felt this before oh what if what if someone needs to reach me what if it's fine the house is not on fire if someone needs you you'll get back to them but keep your device out when it's downtime keep it out of your reach and at meals that phone, unless it's like a working lunch or something, which is basically just being in the office but at a table instead, uh, that that phone should never come out until the until the end, until the check is paid. The phone stays away. I'm, these are rules that I try to live by. I'm not perfect with them, but I really do, and I think it's better for everybody as well. Put the device out of your reach and away. There have been two big wins for the Trump administration on dealing with the crisis at our southern border, but probably haven't heard much about them. The media doesn't like to cover Trump wins. They only like to cover scandal, Trump tweets. Oh, my gosh, did you see the thing that he tweeted? It was terrifying. I don't know how I can sleep at night because of Trump's tweets. That's what they like to cover. They don't like to tell you what's really going on, especially in an issue as important as securing our southern border so here are here are the two two very important developments one is the wall the other is third safe country agreement let's start with the wall shall we uh the, the very short version of a very complicated and long story is that the trump administration uh signed an executive order to use funding that is counter narcotics funding in the department of defense budget to build a wall this is a pretty straightforward idea the wall is preventing a lot of or would prevent a lot of cross-border illegal narcotics traffic. So spending money for that purpose, well, that's counter-narcotics money, right? That's, oh, it all makes sense. Some federal judge, because as we know, all it takes is one, usually Obama appointee judge, to issue a nationwide injunction. So one federal judge anywhere in the country, there's hundreds of them, can just say, yeah, sorry, president can't do that because I say so. And then it has to go all the way up through. And the fact that these federal judges keep getting overturned and overturned and overturned doesn't matter because they're in areas of the country where they think that the politics are on their side. And these judges are activists. They're not applying the law. How could someone sue the Trump administration to prevent the construction of a wall using funds in the Department of Defense that the executive branch has discretion over how to spend? Well, in a 5-4 decision, 
looks like a couple billion dollars now are freed up to be used on the wall. And part of this, uh, part of the the reason for this is that those who are trying to stop the president have no standing. You know, you don't just get to say, I don't like what the president is doing, therefore he can't do it. There has to be a concrete harm and you have to have standing. There, there, there's no individual American who gets to be like, hey, you know what? I don't want a wall, so I'm going to sue the president. Doesn't work that way. There's no standing here. And because there's no standing, there should have been there never should have been a an injunction to stop this from happening. But of course, there was. And uh, this is a big victory for Trump. He was right. Remember, they said, oh, he can't do this. He can't use the money for this. No, no, actually, he can. Remember, this is, you know, a couple billion dollars. Libs are dead set against spending this money on on a wall. We have a massive crisis at our southern border. Drugs, human trafficking, illegal immigration, all this stuff coming together. And the one thing that Democrats are sure of is that they don't want money spent that could stop those things from happening. Why? Because Democrats oppose enforcement of our immigration laws and sovereignty and security at our southern border all the time. Find an issue, they're on the open border side of it. Find an issue that touches on immigration, they're opposed to punishment. They're opposed to law and order every time, without exception. And then that brings me to, so so you have the one Trump victory as in funding for the wall, 5-4 Supreme Court decision. Now, there's going to be more. The court's going to look at it again because this just means that they have a stay on the injunction, which allows the administration to go forward and spend the money while the full merits of this are under consideration for an eventual decision. But at least it means that the wall can get going. Have you heard that, by the way? You know, people are saying, oh, Trump hasn't built the wall, hasn't built the wall. Well, it looks like a couple billion dollars will get you a lot of wall, folks. I've been to that wall. You know, you don't need $100 billion for the wall. You need, you need, you know, in the billions to get you all the, and you only need a few hundred miles of real wall put in place or fence. It's not a wall, it's a fence. It's what people say when they have nothing else to say and want to sound like they have an argument to make. The other part of this, the other uh, victory for the Trump administration, but the Democrats are trying to undo it again because they, they are for open borders. They do not, they do not want this situation to stop. They do not want this to get better. Uh, but the other place is the third safe country agreement that we now have with Guatemala. This is a pretty straightforward one. Third safe country means that people need to, once they get out of the country of, of origin, in this case, usually Honduras or El Salvador, they have to, st- they have to either wait uh, or they have to apply for asylum and that means that they're not in the United States waiting for the case to go through. Right? So in this instance, and it varies a little bit from country to country, a third safe country with Mexico would mean that while you're applying for asylum, you stay in Mexico. A third safe country with Guatemala means that if you don't actually stop in Guatemala and apply there and go all the way through Mexico, all the way to the United States, you are in violation of our, our asylum procedures. What this stops is effectively country shopping by economic migrants who are claiming asylum when when what they really want is to do an end run on the immigration system, which is what's really happening. So this this prevents that. It says, okay, if you're in El Salvador, you're in uh, Honduras and you're you're you need uh, asylum, real asylum. 
You got to ask for it in Guatemala first. See if Guatemala will give it to you. Ah, but see, this this then is a way to shut down the fraud because the fraud is that these are people that are really seeking asylum. What they are seeking is just to immigrate to America. That's all this is under the pretense of fleeing violence and everything else. So, you know what Ilhan Omar and others are spreading today? Guatemala is not a safe enough country. Okay, if Guatemala is not safe enough for people from El Salvador, Honduras to seek refuge in, then I guess we have to accept the whole country of Guatemala's refugees. And if Guatemala is not safe enough, why is Mexico safe enough? These are all countries with very high homicide rates. Do we have to accept anyone from Mexico? Wants to? I mean, this is the dissolution of our system of immigration. Democrats know that. That's why they want it. So they oppose. They oppose the third safe country agreement with Guatemala on the grounds that Guatemala is not a safe enough country. Ah, uh, yeah, that's going to be news to the millions of people who live there, feed their families, go about their day to day. I'm sorry, we, we cannot just take responsibility for all of the problems of the third world in Latin America. That's it's not going to work. Our country cannot sustain itself if that is going to be our posture going forward. But the Democrats don't care. They want open borders. Mitch McConnell, the hawkish foreign policy conservatives who spent decades pushing back on Russia every way I can think of, was accused of what amounts to treason by multiple media outlets within a couple of hours. These people have worn out the volume knobs so badly that they have nothing left but the most unhinged smears. Welcome to modern day McCarthyism. So just to give you a little backstory on why Mitch, cocaine Mitch, is upset. And he, he, may, he may, in fact, have to, he may have to go to war and tell everyone to say hello to his little friend. Um, because he's very upset about what's happening right now. And then what's happening is that you have a, a media offensive just out of basically nowhere with multiple outlets all running with how Mitch McConnell is a Mitch McConnell, folks is a Russian stooge. This reminds me of when you would hear stories back in the day about how uh, about how the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, may also, this was a rumor you'd hear in D.C., maybe Jeff Sessions was compromised by the Russians. I mean, could you imagine that meeting? Oh, yes, Jeff, uh, we would like you to give us uh, influencing the top of the Trump administration and... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to do that, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Sergei Yabalabadov. Uh, I don't I don't you know, I, I don't think anybody really believed that uh, Jeff Sessions was a Russian asset. And yet that was something you would hear. And there were people there were journalists who would say, oh, they must have something on Jeff Sessions. What would they have ever had on Jeff Sessions that he was he was late to church? by five minutes once back in 1987? I mean, really, who, who thinks that there's compromise on Jeff Session? But you, I, this was a story you would hear. I'm pretty sure if you did a Google search on it, some of it would pop up, but this was the rumor. And that was just an indicator of the Trump derangement syndrome that had gripped the Acela Corridor, the journos in New York and D.C. and across the country. There was just a, a version of that, just an, another data point. Uh, and yet here we are again. 
They're still reeling from the loss of their favorite anti-Trump toy, which is the Russia collusion narrative. That's been the number one. That That's the one that they really believe. They know that there's no, the libs know there's no uh, mechanism for removing a president for racism. I mean, that's, you're just, they just do that to defame him, to make him unelectable again, to, you know, to also just to vent their spleen, their rage at the president. Uh, but they know that, you know, there's, they're really not going to get the president removed from office with accusations of racism. That's just not going to fly. Uh, they did think, I believe a lot of liberals believed that Mueller was going to deliver them freedom from Trump, that Mueller was going to end the Trump presidency and that the Russia collusion conspiracy was going to bring the entire thing crashing down. And as we now know, that's not the case. So they've gone on to something else. And and people who have made promises to their audience. And I really mean this, you know, whether, whether we're talking about Democrat politicians or prominent Democrat members of the media, they made promises to their audience that there would be a big Russia bombshell that would, you know, really strike a blow against the Trump administration, against Trump and his family. Uh, they can't now say, well, you know, Mueller's had his shot and uh, it turns out that he wasn't who we said he was and it was kind of all a lie and uh, we're just going to move on past this. No. So what do they do? You can't make this stuff up, folks. They've decided that Mitch McConnell is the new he's the new russia collusion chess piece he's the new mastermind right the guy that maybe they have some compromise on him i'm not i'm not i'm not making this up i'm not exaggerating you had a piece in i want to find it for you here i'm pretty sure it it was dana milbank in the washington post Wrote a piece with the headline. I'm just trying to find the headline so I don't get it wrong. But I, I, it's basically uh, Jeff. I'm sorry. Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset. That's what. Now, the term asset and Dana Milbank knows enough. He's one of these journos that kind of fakes fakes the, uh, you know, the insidery knowledge stuff. So people go, ooh, we must know a lot about how the the dark side of, you know, the intelligence world works and all that. Uh, to call somebody an asset in that context. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mitch McConnell's a Russian asset. It was um, it was in the Washington Post. I'm right. Obviously, the buck's always right. And just kidding. I'm very humble. But that's essentially at least alluding to Mitch McConnell as a as a uh, as a spy, as a traitor, which is why Mitch McConnell's so upset. This is a thing that only a moron could write or say. Dana Milbank isn't a moron. I think he's just deeply cynical. It's a hired gun for the left, no ethics, no honor, common among Democrats, common among leftists these days, the most prominent ones. To call a fellow American a traitor is something that should be reserved for only the most serious offenses with substantial evidence. I don't run around calling Democrats traitors. I think that some of them, a lot of them are dumb. What they're doing is bad for the country. I think that they're venal. I think they're not as smart as they think they are. I think that they're shallow at but I don't run around calling them a traitor. That's a horrible allegation. It, you know, in politics, it's like the equivalent of calling someone a wife beater. You know, you say that to a civilian in day-to-day life, and you've ruined that person's reputation. They're going to call Mitch McConnell a traitor and say that he's doing Russia's bidding? The idiots that have been saying Trump has been doing Russia's bidding all along, where is that, where is that happening, I might add? 
They've had to move away from that because there's no basis in reality. He just likes to Trump likes to troll the press by not doing what they tell him he has to do with his meetings with Putin by not dancing to the required tune of the libs. And his skepticism of the senior ranks of the intelligence community in this country are well founded. What we're supposed to trust that that Brennan and McConnell, I mean, sorry, Brennan and Comey and uh What's Clapper? That's the name I was trying to think of. Those guys are just totally squared away and on the up and up, totally honest, know what's going on. No policy. Of course not. It's idiocy. But Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset is a headline that was published in one of the biggest newspapers in this country by a columnist who knows no shame. And it's all because Mitch McConnell doesn't want to support the latest frenzied effort to create a new Russia collusion headline, which is from, you know, Warner, who I used to think that Mark Warner, I I guess the libs got to him. I guess he's a he's a radical leftist asset now because I used to think that he was at least somebody you could reason with. Not saying that he was reasonable, but you could reason with him. You could hope that maybe you'd have a a normal conversation with him. But he's become a he's a Russia collusion truther at this point. And he's pushing this federalized election security bill because of the threat of, oh, Russian interference in the election once again. And Mitch McConnell's like, no, this is left to the states. States are securing their elections. And think about it just logically. What puts at risk our federal election system more or our federal election more? If the system is entirely centralized or if the system is decentralized and individual states are left to protect the integrity of their systems. I think we all know the answer to that. I mean, if you can just hack into one system, get into one uh, one pipeline and have access to everything, that would be very different than getting into one state. You know, I mean, if the Russians sneak into the uh, the ballot boxes in Rhode Island somehow, that's a very different thing than if they could sneak into all 50 states. But it's just it's unnecessary. They just want to pass this bill so that they can have more time to talk about Russian interference in our election again. And by Russian interference, they just mean that someone somewhere posting memes about how, you know, Hillary needs to be locked up and Trump is awesome. This is really what we're supposed to be so terrified of. Lock her up memes. The left is terrified of pro-Trump memes on Facebook and, and fake news stories that spread like wildfire. As if the propaganda of the New York Times, the Washington Post isn't its own problem. And they do that every day. And they've printed uh, printed plenty of fake news. Uh, But uh, they're smearing Mitch McConnell. It's a disgrace. I'm just glad Mitch is is sticking up for himself because cocaine Mitch don't play. Very happy with the fact that Dan Coates, uh, I, I like Dan. He's a friend of mine. I mean, I think he's a terrific person. I like him a lot. And there really wasn't conflict. I think it was confusion more than conflict. Dan made statements and they were a little confused. But that was not conflict. Dan is a friend of mine. He's a, he's a good man. Uh, but I think that John Ratcliffe is going to do an incredible job if he gets approved. He's got to get approved. But I think he'll do a great job. I hope he gets approved. I think we need somebody like that there. We need somebody strong that can really rein it in. Because as I think you've all learned, the intelligence agencies have run amok they've run amok a lot of uh preparation for what's expected to be a somewhat nasty confirmation battle now 
over the uh, the director of national intelligence position that will now that the president has uh, is trying to fill with Congressman Ratcliffe. Now, Ratcliffe, I didn't really know much about the guy until uh, uh, the Mueller hearings when he had one of the better showings of anybody there. But you can just a, a few things that come to mind here. One is the DNI, the director of national intelligence, is a job that shouldn't really exist. It doesn't need to exist. It didn't exist before 9-11. It hasn't done anything since 9-11. It's a bureaucratic post. You got more than enough national security advisors and this and that and the other thing, coordinators and blah, blah, blah. They're running all. I mean, the government is there's so there are more. There's like 100 people working on terrorism for every terrorist around the world. That much I can tell you. And uh, on the national security side, that is magnified on every issue, right? I mean, you know, you got all these people working on this stuff. How many individuals can the president really listen to and and believe and trust in on any national security matter? The number's not that high, folks. We don't really need a director of national intelligence, but I'll put that aside for a second. The job is there. And as you know, government never gets smaller. We never contract the federal government. I was uh, riding on an electric scooter. I know, I'm a nerd. Past the Department of Labor over the weekend. I just looked at it and I'm just like, why does it? I'm sorry, not Department of Labor, Department of Education, although this could be true too for that. And I was like, why does this place even exist? It doesn't have to exist. There's no reason for it, really. But it does. And the Director of National Intelligence, NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, that's another place. It doesn't need to exist. It's just a big, bloated, unnecessary agency that was created after uh, 9 11. So there's plenty of that. All right. But now what's the real fight? Why is this going to get all political? Put aside my woe is me, the bureaucracies out of control stuff, which is all true. Well, it's because now the media is upset at anyone being in a position of authority in the executive branch who is not of, by and for the bureaucracy and preferably a clear lib that they're going to pretend is just an unbiased public servant, just an unbiased and uh, Yeah, right. You mean like uh, Brennan and Clapper and Comey and McCabe, all these very unbiased Hayden, the CIA, unbiased public servants. No, No person can really believe this, but the Democrats are upset about it. Uh, I mean, here's Chuck Schumer, for example, who's telling you that, you know, oh, this is something to be so worried about. Fifteen. He is so partisan and he has believed in so many conspiracy theories that he's exactly the wrong person to handle DNI. You need someone to speak truth to power. You need someone to tell the president, if you do this, there's a danger of war or a danger of Americans being killed. And Ratcliffe has shown no inclination to speak truth to power. He just gone along with all of Trump's uh, ways. They don't want anybody who isn't ideologically opposed to the president in a position of authority in the executive branch. And now they play the game. The New York Times, I believe it was today, ran an editorial about how we need a nonpartisan director of national intelligence. I mean, this is a joke, friends. John Brennan was a CIA director. John Brennan was like Obama's best buddy. He was a true believer, a super lib, and he was at the CIA and was very involved we don't know the full extent yet in the russia collusion hoax creation and i mean now we're going to get lectured from the other side about how we need 
a nonpartisan person in this role? You know, like like who? Who would be who'd be acceptable? To, but this is the same game they play with judges. Like we're all a bunch of idiots. Like we can't see what's really going on. We can't really have any understanding of of how the other side is playing the game. You know, they say, "Oh, this judge is a right wing extremist." No, the judge is a you know whatever we have a Supreme Court battle. I'm not even talking about the Kavanaugh stuff specifically. Any Supreme Court seat that opens up, or any federal judge, if they think they can make uh, an issue of it. Although now with the, with the Thank you, Democrats, for the nuclear option. They can't do what they used to do, which was just obstruct, obstruct and prevent fantastic uh, conservative judges, especially if it was a female or minority conservative judge from from getting on the bench. Uh, But they would always act like our side has, you know, conservatives have bias and have problems being uh, fair minded. Their side is always oh, their side is never an issue. Now they're they're just public servants, man. They're just there to do the job. Bull. Bull. But you're going to see a lot more of this. Ratcliffe uh, scored some points against the Mueller narrative in that congressional hearing. Just doing his job as a congressman. But they haven't forgotten that one. I'm telling you, they're, they're going to make a lot of noise. They're going to try to get him to pull his nomination. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Just like, I mean, they, they did have that guy. He was in the Pentagon. He was going to be Secretary of Defense. And he had some issue with it was a domestic issue. I forget what it was, but he he withdrew from consideration. And I think that they believe the Democrats believe that they can get Ratcliffe to uh, withdraw. I mean, look, he's got the good news is he's got cocaine Mitch, who despite the Democrats saying all kinds of crazy and mean things about cocaine Mitch. uh, Mitch has got Ratcliffe's back, which will certainly be helpful in this process. Play 16. I haven't met him yet. Uh, I look forward to meeting with him. Uh, we'll go through the uh, confirmation uh, process. And um, generally speaking, <clears throat> I would you know, lean toward President's nominees. And I'd rather not address that until I've actually had a chance to meet him and discuss his background and, and qualifications. Oh, that's right. They're also saying he's not qualified now. You know, somehow Leon Panetta was qualified to run defense and the CIA. But this guy, who's also a congressman, you know, he's not not qualified for for the job. It's basically a bureaucratic post anyway. Uh, But this is what they'll say. And and I, I would just want you all to remember that we have seen what happens. One of the biggest one of the biggest lessons that Trump should have taken from his first two years in office was you can't leave behind the other guy's guy. You can't leave behind deep state uh, entrenched libs and establishment, uh, you know, establishment firsters. And then hope that you're going to get a fair shake if you're a president who's come in explicitly to shake things up and do things differently. I mean, Comey should have been gone right away. No hesitation. I know the old FBI directors. Yeah, we should we should abandon that old pretense. Comey should have been gone right away. Sessions, as much as I like Jeff and, you know, I appreciate that he did my show numerous times. We had a great interview back in the day on the on the Hill. Jeff was not the right pick for attorney general. He needed Jeff was a a peacetime consigliere and. Donald Trump needed a wartime consigliere as his attorney general, and Jeff just did, just wasn't that guy. 
one of the biggest mistakes of Trump's presidency, because that really led to that, you know, the domino effect. Imagine if you had had Bill Barr from the beginning in that attorney general role. Do you think that any of this crap would have gone? He would have said, OK, you guys would really think we're going to start a special counsel here. Let's let's first figure out how this whole lie got started. And then we'll begin the lie about Russia, Trump collusion. Let's investigate the dossier. Let's investigate all these. You know, it would have been that first. And he just never would have allowed what was clearly a political hit. But hopefully the Trump administration's learned its lesson. I think Ratcliffe will be uh, good. I wonder how many in the major, in the mainstream, the big media, are going to care about uh, the USA Soccer Federation's statement that it put out today. I think the answer is very, very few. Just as we see so many times with the left, it's not about being correct. It's not about telling the truth. It's about spreading information that can be false, but it doesn't matter, to a purpose. And as long as it was useful at that point in time for that purpose, the left and the mainstream media are fine with it. They see no need to go back and correct. They see no need to apologize, to retract, any of those things. Well, just yesterday, the USA Soccer, Federa- uh, Soccer Federation um, put out a statement, a fact sheet, because they're sick of what the narrative has become, because the narrative is a lie. Here is what we are told, that the women's national team for soccer. And a lot of you don't care about soccer, but put that aside for a second because, you know, we could be talking about shuffleboard for all I care. It's just the gender equality nonsense that we're getting into here. All right, so forget about, I know, all your soccer jokes. It's a lot of, you know, it's two hours of passing and no goals. And I, I know, I know. But this is about the stories that we were told and at the, with the World, uh, Women's World Cup going on, there was a lot of coverage of this. Megan Rapino who is laughing about her wokeness all the way to the bank. I mean, has now become a has become a household name by being uh, strangely anti-American and and somewhat uh, odious in her approach to the flag and to the national anthem. But she's now famous. I know who she is. You know, probably who she is. If you're listening to the show, you do. But it was all started uh, or rather the the primary storyline we would always hear about the women's national soccer team is that they are underpaid compared to men and there was always a a pretty clear jab at the men's national team here because the women would point to how they were world champions right They, they were a top team they beat poor thailand like 14 to nothing which i they should be embarrassed about that not thailand the united states women's team there's no need to beat a, to beat another team in international competition at the World Cup by, you know, more than eight goals. OK, that's enough. If you're really going to need the goal differential going down the line, then you weren't a good enough team and don't deserve to win the whole thing. I mean, if you're just going to run the score up against clearly a, a, a very crappy team. But oh, then it could, that was sexist to say that. It's not sexist. It's true. Now. The women's, uh, the, the women's team that we were told they're, they're underpaid. USA Soccer has put out a statement today. Here's what they, on compensation. Here's what they say. Over the past decade, U.S. Soccer has paid our women's national team more than our men's national team 
From 2010 through 2018, U.S. soccer paid our women $34.1 million in salaries and game bonuses, and we paid our men $26.4 million, uh, $26. million, not counting the significant additional value of various benefits that our women's players receive, but which our men do not. And then they go into the pay. These are the facts, folks. This is the real story. Think about all the time, Rapino running around, equal pay, equal pay, and all these women, you know, girl power and rah-rah. It was all crap. If anything, the women in the U.S. national team are overpaid. That's right, overpaid. You could say you don't care, but the media was telling us this. This was supposed to be raising awareness about gender disparity and how terrible it is and oh it's so hard and you know women have to work twice as hard as a man to get 30 percent of the or you know 72 cents on the dollar or what i don't even know the number because that number's a lie too <laughs> this this is just not true people get connected they get attached to these narratives these storylines and then they don't care when it's not true this is facts folks this is numbers numbers don't lie the women have made more money I've been paid more money by the U.S. Soccer Federation than the men. And there's some very interesting additional information that comes out here. This is from the U.S. Soccer Federation. This isn't like some, you know, right-wing blog somewhere. The women wanted a different pay structure. The women wanted guarantee and got because they have different collective bargaining agreements. The female players have guaranteed salaries. The female players also want full dental and health and vision and lots more in, in benefits. The male players are more willing to have a backloaded structure where they get essentially higher pay for better performance. The women want guarantees. Now, at, at the risk of being considered sexist, anybody who's ever uh, worked in financial management will tell you that generally speaking, not always, you don't, you know, the, the, to the ladies out there running a hedge fund of their own or whatever, or running a Fortune 100 company, I'm not talking about you, but, but generally speaking, women are more fiscal, you could say fiscally prudent, more risk averse than men are. It's men who generally financially like to swing for the fences because men and women generally view money in different ways. For men, it is often a, a function of, of status. And for women, it is often more a function of necessity. And essentially, they want the money to pay the bills to live nicely and for everything to be okay and be stable. And men are more prone psychologically to say, I, I want to bet the farm. I want to go all in. Well, this collective bargaining structure reflects that general, uh, that general breakdown. And it just it just goes on in, in greater detail than I need to tell you about right now. But the, the per game comparison they get into here, I mean, the women are paid more than the men. Think about that. The women are paid more. By the way, women's soccer compared to men's soccer uh, at the at the FIFA level, men's soccer is generating billions and billions and billions of dollars of revenue. Women's soccer. Then now FIFA is the International Soccer Federation, right? But women's soccer is. In the, you know, in like 100 million. It's a tiny fraction, a tiny fraction of what the men generate in advertising revenue. And that's just a function of eyeballs on the games. Now, uh, 
this is a total a total refutation of the story that we were all told by the media. Did anyone in the media ever think to pull these numbers? You know, all these journos. I live in a city full of people who are journalists, refer to themselves that way, take themselves very seriously, and n- never seem to actually want to do the work of journalists. They want to be advocates. They want to be partisans. But with the shield of journalism, so you can't go after them for this. And so that their own, their own side of the issue politically can say, they're not partisans, they're just telling us the facts. They're just giving us the truth, which is nonsense. And anybody who's sophisticated in their reading and their understanding of the media already knows that. Women's soccer has also received substantially uh, more investment in recent days. Uh, so I, I just think that this is something that we all need to be in recent years, rather, we, we need to be aware of. I mean, this was a it was a lie. This whole thing about women aren't paid the same. And this, this is not this is not true. This is a lie. Uh, uh, the numbers have come out. The numbers show it. And this is where we are. So I like to tell you the truth, folks. It's one of the reasons why I want you to come here and listen to the Buck Sexton show. And that's enough women's soccer talk for one day, probably, hopefully forever. We'll be right back. It's going to be quite a while before the left abandons its quest to pretend that there can be absolute absolute equality, not under the law, but equality of, of genetics, of biology, sameness, which is a different thing than equality for law. There can be a sameness of the genders, that there's no distinction between male and female. Libs have made this an article of faith. You cannot reason with them. You cannot change their minds. You, there's nothing that you can say. When you point out as, as a parent, as many of my friends have done, that their, their little boy, their little girl just acted differently and generally in line with what boys and girls want to do. Uh, we're told that, oh, that's that's an environmental situation, even though all of the literature that looks at this, the scientific literature will tell you that, no, there, there are differences in in uh how they interact with authority how they interact with each other aggressiveness behavioral tendencies between male and female of course there are we have different biochemistry but the left has just decided that no longer is the case and that's why that's why you have pieces like this in the washington post which publishes a, a lot of insanity these days perspective let's have a gender reveal party that reveals gender is a construct. Um, I, I don't even want to read this article. I, I'm, I'm actually reacting to the headline because it does not matter what their argument is. I've read the argument many times in many different places. Gender is not a construct. Gender is rooted in science and reality. And the moment that they start to play this game of, well, what about people who are intersex or have some other then you have to come back at them with but that's not what you're talking about you're not discussing biological anomaly as what what is the outlier here in gender situations no you're saying that when someone decides as a male that they are female they are female that there is no such thing as a as gender it is purely a state of mind it is a psychological state there's just simply no evidence for this this other than as a mental illness, there's no evidence for it. It does not exist. <sighs> and you could say, well, we should let people be people and do what they want. I'm, I'm fine with people doing what they want as, as adults. 
I'm not fine with children being told that they're going to give uh, they're going to have hormones before they've even hit puberty because they think that their their gender they have a gender dysphoria. Uh, I, I don't think that's okay. By the way, there's no such thing as a scientist who can tell you what the long term effects of that are because we don't know because it's now just beginning has never been done before. So and somebody say, oh, Buck, I'm sure they'll point to some study where someone tried in the 90s. Yeah, but I mean, there's no real scientific foundation, no, no basis of research for these claims. It might have been done once or twice here or there, but nobody really knows what the long term effects are. But they still uh, they still stick to this, e- even in areas of of um, professional sports competition, as, as we've been discussing. Uh, the, the left wants us to bend the knee on this issue because it is forcing you to accept untruth. And that makes you question everything else about yourself, about your own judgment, about your autonomy, your intellectual freedom. When someone insists on you, and remember, they want to force you now. They want to use law. They want to use the power of the state to compel you to say that an individual is uh, a female when that individual is actually male. And, and overwhelmingly, the most aggressive people about this uh, in terms of litigation and in the media, it's always the male to female transition, I find, where there's a, a, real, a real self-righteousness about it. The female to male transition seems to be much more, uh, the, the people advocating for that are, are much more muted in how they approach it, or at least more, uh, more subdued. Um, but I, I don't know how much longer, folks, I can even tell you the truth about this before I'm going to get banned from Twitter. I'm going to get told that there's some corporate problem with me writing this, saying this, believing this. And that's a, that's a scary precedent to set when corporate America is going to force down our throats or when our social media czars are going to uh, are going to tell us, make us say things that are false, what else can they make us do? The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call time. I guess the debate's going on right now, so hopefully you're listening to this while the debate is on mute. But nonetheless, at this point, you're probably seeing that Joe Biden's coming out swinging. That's right. Blue collar Joe's rolling up the sleeves and going to be a tough guy. Going to challenge somebody to a push up competition or some other nonsense. All right. Let's get to your thoughts here. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is how you can uh, send us your, your thoughts for all things Roll Call. And I always, always appreciate when you do. So thank you so much for that. And we read everything that comes in. I get to as much of it on air as I can. All right, Rob. Short and sweet, Rob. Thick cut bacon is the best. Rob, that is absolutely correct. I did post a short video on the gram today which I think is what the cool kids call Instagram of some thick cut bacon in my pan getting cooked. And this is what I always tell people. Bacon should not be 
some tasteless grease strip uh, that has some faint, vague smell of bacon. Bacon should, in fact, taste like pork. Uh, Bacon should be uh, something that is a pork product when you're eating it. And the thick cut just maintains flavor better. And I always tell you, if you go to a butcher and they have, or you know, the butcher counter at your grocery store, and they have any um, ability to slice the bacon off for you in real time, that's, my friends, that's the way to do it. You want to slice that bacon off and eat that bacon. Uh, well, just eat the bacon in general. A friend of mine today sent me a message saying, you mean your cancer sticks? And I'm like, look, if bacon gives me cancer, you know what? I'm going to enjoy life and go out happy. I don't know what to say. I'm not giving it up. Erica, right? Instead of the squad, can we call them the Heathers? They're treating the Congress like it's a high school and American citizens like we are all Martha Dump Truck. Erica, I think you're the second person who has made a reference to the Heathers, which I believe is, if we're going to be fair, a Gen X or Gen Y reference. Us millennials are unfamiliar with the Heathers. So I don't I don't know what the Heathers are this show I, I don't know but but appreciate nonetheless you making a pop culture reference here. Uh, let us see. John right Shields High fan since the real news days. Gosh guys we're coming up on some of you have been with me now for almost ten years. Isn't that amazing? It's like we're all grown up together now. I do really appreciate it though. It's an honor that you've been willing to give me your time over all these years. I hope you've learned a lot and will continue to learn a lot and have a lot of fun while we do it. Disney World is for anyone who has the money to pay for it, John writes. One of the number one things to do is taking your picture with the characters. Oh, sorry. One of a number of things to do, rather, is to take your picture with the characters. It's a rare thing, and the more photos you get with more characters makes you better than your friends who didn't get any photos with Donald and Goofy or Chip and Dale. Uh, John, thanks so much. I, I, people have strong views on Disney World. Susie and Andy, as a German-American, my German grandmother would never have taken us anywhere if we were not very well behaved. Children undisciplined must be a newer problem. I keep coming across this, and I'll tell you when it's the worst offenders are where it's whenever I hear somebody has a a fancy European accent. You look, oh, the children are going to make so much noise. My children are at the fancy restaurant. They will spit on your head from behind. They will throw their little toy for the children in your in your vicious You know, they just don't care. The Europeans, I don't know what's going on, but they think that children, they think that the rest of society finds their ill-behaved children either adorable or is too oblivious to care, which is probably more likely, what the rest of society thinks of their ill-behaved children. I do, I do think this is a cultural thing. Um, it's, it's just, you know, I, I do not come across this the same way. Look, anyone from anywhere can have badly behaved children, but I really believe that Western Europeans have have convinced themselves that kids can just act up and that's just kids being kids. That's not true. My, my mom never would have allowed us to cause a scene in public, and we never would have done it. It just wouldn't have happened. Gabrielle writes, oh, here we go. Hold on a second. Uh, the mental aspects you've been talking about the last few days are easily explained 
in neuro research. It's because they've actually suffered brain damage. This is not a joke. This will explain the clinical data in somewhat layman's terms. The left is creating massive fake stress by making their followers constantly think the world is ending. This forces people to feel significant stress over time by constantly reinforcing the delusion. The stress then gets to be internalized because there's no end to the perceived threat. Internalizing the emotions then causes the amygdala to go into high gear on a constant basis and shrinks the temporal lobe. The left has basically perfected a way of creating a fake form of PTSD and mercilessly unleashed it on its own supporters. It's literally causing psychosis in the same way as someone being victimized by an abusive narcissist for long periods of time. It is the neuro equivalent of a stress ulcer. This is exactly why the leftist followers live in such a mental bubble and are incapable of understanding basic truths. So in the end, the idea of Trump derangement syndrome is actually legit. Do a quick uh, search on suppressed emotion and its effect on the brain, and it will all start to make sense. Uh, Gabriel, I, I don't know if uh, what any of what you've written here is, is scientifically true or not, but it certainly was convincing or, or interesting. So and, and it sounds it sounds plausible. One thing that I do know from the very, uh, very, very superficial reading that I'm able to do sometimes on uh, biochemistry and, and brain structure, I find these you know, these are very interesting areas because we know so little about them. So you can approach these with a built in uh, with a built in humility that all people should have, because even the world's greatest brain surgeon doesn't really understand very much about the human brain, folks. Understand some of the functioning and the tissue, but how does A get to B get to C? Not a, not a whole lot there. We really don't understand the underlying functions. We don't understand the underlying functions, or rather we can't replicate the underlying functions of a basic cell. So just keep in mind the, the miracle of life is not something we're able to replicate. Uh, as for the, yeah, the PTSD that it creates, I, I do believe that libs are in the midst of a mass psychosis, uh, a mass delusion. And th I don't say that to be funny or to be to sound extreme. I, I really think that that is happening and that we should uh, take into account that as the, the reality that we now face. And it wouldn't be the first time. And there have been different periods in history. Go back and, and do some reading. You know, we always think of the Salem witch trial and the hysteria around it, right? The Salem, Salem witch trials. That was just a little American version of it. There were uh, witch trials throughout medieval Europe over the course of centuries that, you know, would, would end, ended up putting countless numbers of women to death, usually burning at the stake. Although there are other ways, too, that they would execute women based on what was effectively a village, a, a spreading village hysteria from one village to another village to another. You know, they'd, they'd be uh, completely terrified of. Uh, of witchcraft and of witches and they'd put them to death this was for centuries in europe this was a real thing in fact they, they, that's where the whole uh storyline of cats as the as the familiars as the uh little assistants of witches goes back to medieval times and it's also why cats have had a in uh, in european historical tradition they've had a very different treatment than than in more eastern cultures uh, discussion for another time. See, you learn all kinds of interesting things here on the Buck Sexton Show. I tell you what, this is the greatest part of my job other than getting to hang out with all of you because the nicest, smartest, coolest, 
best people listen to this show, which is it's just it's nice that that's the reality. It's the truth. Uh, but that's the number one greatest thing. The number two greatest thing is that everything that I learn that is interesting and worth knowing, I have an opportunity to share with a whole lot of people. And that just makes it that just makes my job every day much more fun. Less writes, if you ever bake your bacon on a wire rack, you're never going to fry it again. Mamma mia. Less. I don't know, man. My bacon skills on the grills are they're they're excellent i i cook really good bacon one the the secret for me to cooking the perfect bacon the cooking uh, cooking the perfect eggs on both counts is a bit of patience with the heat we tend to want to cook things far too quickly we figure oh bacon you just cook it through because what you you hit a very you hit a point where you have to remember the pan even if you turn the heat off will have a lot of residual heat in it and will continue to cook. And even internally, the meat itself will continue cooking when the outside has reached a certain temperature. So if you if your heat is way too high, and this is definitely true of eggs, eggs go from, you know, looks like something that you blew out of your nose to little r- r- rubbery, tasteless things. They serve you in a lot of diners across the country in like 30 seconds if the heat's too high. I mean, you can really... Uh, you know, or, or rather, if you don't turn the heat down at a certain point within 30 seconds, you're going to you're going to overcook them. So I think you've got to go go slow, low and slow is the secret to bacon and eggs cooking, in my humble opinion. But I'm right. And I and I know what I'm talking about here. And I, I cook amazing bacon and eggs. Will writes Buck CPAC registration is now open. Are you going to be moderating a few discussions like last time? I was one of your listeners who talked to you right before the China security on cyber. Gordon Chang was on that panel. Um, Will, I haven't been asked yet to speak at CPAC, but the fine folks who uh, run the American Conservative Union and put CPAC together, uh, I'm hoping uh, will reach out again. And I'd love to do CPAC again. It was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a great event. And if I am, in fact, invited, I will certainly let you all know. That's it for today, team. Talk to you tomorrow from Baltimore, no less. Shields high.